Well, it's finally here. The last lesson of this series we're calling History of the Bible. But of course, in this the 21st lesson, we've covered far more than just the history of the Bible, you know, biblical history. Just a I want to do just a quick review of where we started before we deal with this last topic. The first thing we did in this series is talked about revelation, right? God communicates to mankind. He's made himself known in, in nature. We call that general revelation, but he's also made himself known in a variety of ways through special revelation to specific individuals who ended up writing portions of scripture. Then we considered inspiration. When God gave that special revelation to the prophets or the apostles, he moved them to, to write down that message that he gave them. Um, inspiration literally means God breathed. And Paul says all scriptures are God breathed. They're given by inspiration so that the Bible is the very breath of God as the Holy Spirit moved the inspired writers to record his word. Then, if you remember, we also learned that inspiration is not mechanical. There's the personality, the vocabulary, the the character of the inspired writers shows up in the portions of scripture that they write. So we have John's very simple vocabulary, not very simple message, but very simple vocabulary. We have Paul, who's legal mind is making um, very complex arguments. Isaiah was raised in the royal court and he writes like somebody who was raised in the royal court. David was a, a poet and so the Psalms reflect his character and talents. Then we got into the area of study which is probably what everybody will remember if you remember anything. We got into um, transmission, right, how those original documents that the inspired writers wrote down, how those were were copied into thousands and thousands of individual handwritten manuscripts. We talked about canonization, how God caused his people, first the Jews and, and later Christians, to recognize what books and letters truly were written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? There's a lot of documents that are out there, but not all the things um, that are written are inspired. So canonization, we identify the inspired books. We talked about textual criticism, how manuscripts compare to each other. We find they're not all identical, but they are much closer than we would necessarily have expected. And so when there are those different readings, how do we look at them and sort of logically determine which one is the, the original reading? We talked about translations, how those words in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament get translated. They get transferred into, well, new languages, especially for us English, obviously, but uh, we explained why not all translations read exactly the same. Some of them are using different manuscripts. Some of them are um, finding a different way to balance the goal of, on one hand, being true to the original as literal as possible, and on the other hand, being uh, understandable at the same time. 
And then, even though it isn't necessarily historical in that sense, we dealt with how we approach the Bible now. We talked about interpretation, right? Just because we have uh, all the words translated and we understand the words, that doesn't mean we don't have difficulty really grasping the meaning of particular passages of Scripture. Um, (laughs) This morning is probably a good example. None of the words were all that complicated, but when you try to really get your mind around the meaning, it's not necessarily easy. That's why Paul argues in 2 Timothy 2.15, he tells us to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Remember, we talked about that. It literally means to cut it straight, right? To, to do the work, rightly dividing requires real work. Learning the words, the figures of speech, the historical context, taking it literally, not just trying to make up things that aren't there. Last time we talked about illumination because thankfully, thankfully the Holy Spirit who inspired the word of God is the same Holy Spirit that indwells believers and we've got the promise that the Holy Spirit will aid us in understanding. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth, which he said will lead you into all truth. So what a tremendous blessing that even though we're called on to do the hard work of interpreting, of understanding the scripture, we also can rely on the guidance of the Holy Spirit to help us. So this afternoon, there's just one more thing I want to talk about. Look at James chapter 1. Without this final concept, absolutely everything else is going to prove entirely pointless. If you don't follow along to this final step, the Bible says that you are practicing self-delusion. This final step, the final thing we want to talk about is application. James 1, starting at verse 22, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or in a mirror, looking in a mirror. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So all of that history of the Bible we discussed from God's revelation to the inspiration of inspired writers to the good translation that you're holding in your hands, even the work of of reading and, and understanding what it says, all of that leads us to the goal of actually doing what the Bible says. As Just as a side note, let me add, that's why I don't stress out as much about translations as I used to because I've yet to find an honest attempt at biblical translation into English which by reading it, a person is going to be led to believe something different or behave in a different way. Both belief and behavior are important. James says... If you just hear the word or you just read the word, but you don't obey it, you don't do what it says, you're practicing self-deceit. 
In Luke eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Blessed are they which hear the word of God and keep it. Or in Titus 1, 1, as Paul writes a letter to his friend Titus, he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and, listen, the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Now, that's the King James Version. The, the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible says it like this, according to their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The idea is that knowing the truth is for the purpose of obeying the truth, to, to live in godliness. That's why you've heard me say many times that the goal of Scripture is not to, to fill all your heads with the answers to a spiritual final exam. You're not going to get a doctrinal test when you get to heaven. What you're going to get is a well done, good and faithful servant based on your actions, your behavior, or we're going to fail to get a well done you good and faithful servant. The purpose of the word of God isn't to just adjust what you believe, but also how you behave. In fact, that was the whole point all the way back to inspiration. Look, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. We get so guilty sometimes of focusing on one part of what a passage says and not thinking it all the way through. You know this portion of scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We have used it numerous times in this study, but I want to just like slowly walk through it and break it down for a second. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, And we come to this passage and we go, well, all scripture is from God. And that's the point. But that's not Paul's point. He is saying that all scripture is from God, but he's saying it for a reason. Keep reading. It is profitable. Literally, it means useful. It's to be used. It's profitable for doctrine. That's a word that means teaching, right? The Bible is the complete body of truth that God intends for us to know. It's good for reproof. That's proving or, or testing is what that means. So it's not just giving us what to believe, but it also gives us a standard by which we can test what we believe. It's good for correction. The, Paul, the, the word that Paul uses there for correction is interesting. It's only used here in the New Testament. But outside the Bible, it gets used for setting something upright again or helping someone who has stumbled to get back on their feet. In testing our lives according to the word, it's sometimes going to expose sin in our lives, and yet even then, it's the word itself that is the tool for setting us back up when we stumble. And then he says it's for instruction in righteousness, right? More than just what to believe, but also how to behave. That the man of God may be perfect. Here's a quiz from this morning. What's that word mean? Perfect. Complete mature, right, a grown-up Christian, that a man of God may be perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, entirely provided. The, the Bible is the entire provision that we need in order to do God-pleasing work. 
That's what Paul's intention in this passage is. He's not just arguing that Scripture is inspired. He's telling us the reason that God inspired it is so that it would be useful, so that we would actually put it into action in our lives. That's application. The Bible demands application. One thing it does is it demands application from preachers and teachers. It's evident that God intends for all people to make application. And one of the reasons why we know that is because the Bible is very clear in saying that people who preach and teach the word are required to apply it, to, to make some application to the people that they're speaking to. And so if you're still there in uh, 2 Timothy, keep reading right through the chapter break. Chapter 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore, right, because of that, because of everything he just said about Scripture, he's writing to his young preacher friend Timothy and says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, it's funny when you try to say those words at the same time, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Look, I, I just challenge you sometime to take your Bible and sit down and chart out the similarities between chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul argues what the Bible is useful for, and chapter 4, verse 2, where he tells Timothy how he's supposed to preach it. There are parallels there. Because the Bible's inspired, it's useful, and Timothy is expected to preach it to God's people in a way that demands that they use it, that they put it into practice. This isn't the only time Paul says this to him. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, Until I come, give attendance to reading, and that is the public reading is what that word means. Give attendance to the public reading, to exhortation, and to teaching. Or in other words, the work of the preacher that Paul gives here is you read the word, you explain the word, and you apply the word. Right? Tell, tell people, here's what it says, here's what it means, here's what it means for you to do. By the way, that's exactly the role of teaching and preaching in the Old Testament as well. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 is Judah was released from um, Judah was released from captivity uh, and there was a day that all the people gathered and they asked Ezra to bring the uh, word of God out. And so Ezra brought the word and he brought some helpers to read it and to teach it. And here's what it says in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. It says, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now you Catch those three areas there. They read it, they explained it, and they applied it. They said, here's what it says, here's what it means, here's what it means for you to do. And you read through the rest of chapter 8, and the people are actually putting the word into action, applying it by being obedient to it. Y'all, I need to get better at making application of Scripture as we're 
preaching and teaching scripture. The reason I know that I need to get better is through the very application of these passages, right? I've read it. I understand what it means. I know what it means for me to do. So I need to do it. But the Bible demands application from just its readers as well. Let me tell you about the very first person who received a written copy of God's word. And you can come up to me later and go, well, what about Moses and the Ten Commandments on a tablet? And that's, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, Moses was not the first person to receive anything like scripture as we would think of it. Joshua was actually the one who received it. In Exodus 17, verse 14, God told Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. And when Moses died and Joshua became the leader of the nation, he was faced with a daunting task and he was faced with a task with a book of God's word put down in his lap to follow it. Look at Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 is Joshua is being prepared for this daunting task of, re, of leading the people. Verses 7 and 8, this is what it says. Only be thou strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which my, Moses, my servant, commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For, when thou shalt, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. This is what Joshua was expected. Right? You read the word and, and then follow it. Not just know it, but do what it says. And so because I need to get better at making application, let me give you three practical ways in which you can make sure that you are practicing application of God's word. First, you need to learn it. This requires reading the word and studying the word. I'm very thankful that our study in 1 John a couple of weeks ago also taught that the people of God have a responsibility to know the word of God enough to identify false teaching. I'm glad, I'm very thankful that I get to help you learn the word, but you can't just rely on me. You have a responsibility to learn the word yourself. Bible reading, right? some kind of Bible reading program, is essential to Christian maturity. One-year reading programs are great, but they're not the only option. You can read through the New Testament several times in a year. You can read the Gospels a few times in a month. Right? There's different ways of doing this. The concern with Bible reading programs are that you, you know, Often we approach it like, okay, I want to get through this and make sure I get through it, but it never really gets through to us. And if I'm honest, I will tell you, absolutely, I've sat down with my Bible reading for a day and went, how quickly can I speed read my way through this? I'm sure you have too. Listen, it would be better 
if that's what all we're doing, it would be better if someone slowed down and took two or three years each trip through the Bible, if by cutting back on the number of chapters you're reading every day, you are increasing how much you actually pay attention to what those chapters say. Read, read your Bible, read your Bible study notes, grab a good commentary. I know people think commentaries are just for preachers. They're not. Tell me what you're reading. I'll, I'll be glad to uh, recommend a book that'll be helpful to you in, in really understanding it in depth. And I'll add, even if you've, if, if you've been reading through the Bible several times and you find yourself, as happens, so familiar with the words of Scripture that you can just read over them without thinking about them, y'all pick up a different translation that's got slightly different words that you can't do that with. And you'll read it through it in a different translation and it will help. Sometimes the benefit is more clarity, but often it's just that the unfamiliar words make you slow down and think about what it is that you're reading. Second, you need to remember it. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I hid in my heart. And we even sing that, right? But have you? You know, there are times where some situation arises and you're pretty sure there's a Bible passage that would be great to apply, but you just don't remember it. Isn't that when you wish you had the word hidden in your heart? You have to do it before that. Scripture memorization is worth doing. It's not just for little kids in a Sunday school class. Although, I greatly appreciate when I was in Brother Pittman's Sunday school class and he had a unique way of encouraging some wayward junior high boys to memorize Scripture. If you came in and you had your memory verse done and you you could you could recite it by memory there would be a reward which is absolutely the wrong reason to do a memory verse but there would be a reward and it would be like a dollar and the next week it's a dollar and then pretty soon oh a dollar's not worth it and he would show up and there'd be a hundred dollar bill on the desk and you can't believe how much you want to scramble to try to remember something that you never bothered trying to remember And you couldn't do it that week, but the next week, you better believe I showed up with the memory verse. And I got a dollar. (laughs) I still have a few of those rattling around in my mind, though. Even if you don't memorize scripture, which you should do, you can meditate on it, which you need to do. Remember, what God told Joshua is that you should meditate on it Day and night. You may know Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of God, and in his law he meditates day and night. You will be blessed by meditating on God's word. Now, this is fun because the Hebrew word for meditate has the root of the word based in the idea of a cow chewing its cud, which I apologize that it sounds gross, but they eat the grass, they chew it, they swallow it, they digest it, and then they bring it back up and they chew on it some more. 
right? The idea is to try to get every bit of benefit, every possible nutrient from it. And so when the Bible talks about meditating on God's word, it's saying, look, this isn't just a, a quick one-way process. It is you, you put it into your mind and you think about it. You digest it. You, you bring it back to your mind. You think about it some more and see if you can get more from the word. Listen, I'll never argue that any Bible reading is bad, but I agree with Donald Whitney who said that just reading uh, quickly without meditation is like a a brief rainfall hitting dry, hard-packed ground. It's just going to run off. And we should want it to sink in so that it becomes hidden in our heart. We think biblically and we're constantly applying Scripture to our daily lives. You are going to grow in your Christian walk in direct proportion to your intake and understanding of God's word. You aren't going to grow one inch beyond your consumption and understanding of the word of God. So you have to ask yourself, you know, if you want to know, well, how much should I be studying and meditating on scripture? Well, simply ask how, how much spiritual growth do you want? Finally, do what it says. Granted, this is not always easy because first we have to understand what it says and then understand what it means for us to do. And sometimes that's very clear. Like, you know, flee fornication, flee sexual immorality. That one's not hard to understand. It's not even hard to understand what it is that we should do in, in application of it. That's, that one's not complicated. The interpretation and the application is clear. But what about um, eating meat that's sacrificed to idols? You know, that was a real problem for first century Christians in New Testament times, but I don't know how, how many folks here have had the opportunity to buy meat from a meat market that's out back of a pagan temple. Although Kroger is like really close. I... So you, you can't just ignore interpretation and skip ahead to application. Every passage of Scripture, try to, try to internalize this, every passage of Scripture has one meaning and only one meaning. But a passage of Scripture could have several God-honoring applications that stem naturally from that one meaning. So we have to seek to have, understand the meaning first and then apply any principles that are found in that meaning. So um, to give you an example, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. I'll read it for you. It won't be hard. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Now, the interpretation, understanding the meaning there is not complicated. The Hebrews, they lived in an agricultural society. Oxen were used in order to grind the, the grain after harvest. They would connect the oxen to the, the, the mill, that, that large uh, circular rock, the millstone. And he would go around and around in circles, crushing the grain, and the grain falls, and it's right there on the ground. But as that ox is working, you know, head down, pulling hard, his food is the grain. 
And he's, his nose is this far from the food. And you're working him really hard and you're putting his nose right there in the stuff that he wants. And so to put a muzzle on him would keep him from being able to eat. And God says, man, that's, that's cruel. God's law just says, don't do that. So that's the interpretation. But to apply that, all right, show of hands, how many of y'all have an ox? Okay. Then we got a problem. Is the scripture meaningless? It gets quoted twice in the New Testament, actually, by the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 9.9 and in 1 Timothy 5.18 to say that the elders who do teaching and preaching of the word should be paid for that work. He actually, in 1 Corinthians, goes on to say, you don't think that's just about oxes, do you? Surely this applies to people too. So the meaning, the meaning of Deuteronomy 25.4 is about oxen, but the application of that meaning is something more like when, when you do work, you have a reason to expect to benefit from that work. So let's try a different one for ourselves real quick. And I, and I picked this because it's also about oxen. And it's in the Proverbs, so it stands alone pretty well. The good thing about Proverbs is many times they're just short sayings, and so you not have to try to grasp all the context around it. Proverbs 14, verse 4. You can look at it if you want to. Proverbs 14, verse 4. I guess I should look at it if I want to. though I know what it says. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Okay, that's it. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Now, in Solomon's day, not everybody could own an ox, much less more than one, so that you could yoke oxen together. But if you did, there was a great benefit to owning an ox when you went to do the work on the farm. You could plow more, you could harvest more, you could grind more grain, you could earn more money selling extra to others. But along with owning the ox comes some responsibilities. It's it's a great means to work, but they get dirty, and then you get dirty, and then the barn gets dirty. I mean, if you've ever picked up your yard after a dog, imagine owning an 800-pound ox. When you don't have an ox, this proverb says you'll have a clean stall, right? You're not going to have a mess in the barn when you don't have an ox because there's nothing to get it dirty. But you miss out on the potential benefit that it brings. But here's the problem. Proverbs is not an agricultural manual, right? This is life lessons for people. So what's the life lesson here? What if I told you it was as simple as often having a mess to clean up is the price of growth? Or putting in effort is the only way to expect a return? Or sometimes it's the things that are least convenient that are actually the most beneficial? 
And we can learn this. Like if we understand, well, there's, that's the meaning of scripture. And then we try to apply scripture. And we go, well, how would that apply to us? We don't have to have oxen for this to apply to us. We can have some really great Sunday school classes. All we got to do is get rid of the kids. You know, they make a mess. We can, we can clean up the fellowship hall and never have it dirty again. How's that sound, Tony? Never having the fellowship hall dirty again. All we have to do is never fellowship again. You can separate yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ and life is not going to be nearly as messy, but also you're not accomplishing anything of eternal benefit either. You can make your life more convenient by not participating in things like Rescue Mission, Esther House, VBS, we're about to have a meeting. But it's not reasonable to expect a great harvest for not putting in work in the process. Every passage of scripture has only one meaning, right? The, the meaning of Proverbs 14.4, that's not going to change, right? If we can understand the way oxen worked and that, that Solomon's making this principle that things that are inconvenient are often the things that are beneficial, but then there's several potential applications. What are things that you've been avoiding because they're inconvenient when you ought to be doing and reaping the benefit of it? So we're going to finish this history of the Bible series by going back to James's command. Be doers of the word and not just hearers, right? Apply the word of God by acting on it not just reading it. And if you won't do that, James says you're practicing self-deception in the process. You're deceiving yourselves, he says. This is the, the message of God in the word that's for us. Application is what happens when we take that message of God for us and actually obey it, do what it says.